you know, it's really easy when you have three books <laughs> with sort of an endless well of information in them. Um, but then on top of that, you know, I also had Steve Zalian's script, and then I also have David Fincher directing me. So um, I kind of had a, I kind of had it pretty easy if you really think about it. You know, there was a lot of research that went into it. There was a lot of training that I had to do. Um, and it was a lot of work, but um, I felt very lucky to have sort of all of those resources. movie fans welcome back to a brand new episode of not a bomb podcast this is the show where usually we talk about movies that bombed at the box office or you know maybe the critics didn't like but somebody just didn't understand the homework assignment and uh that would be my co-host brad how, how are you doing tonight brad you know it took us 179 episodes but uh we finally did it we we did a movie that uh both was a financial success and critically uh, acclaimed. But I, I will say this. Yeah. Everyone I've talked to, it's they're always like, oh, wait, I thought that movie did bomb. So no, kind no, of Brad. Switching it. Nope. I don't think anybody ever said that. People assume because After all of the Academy Award sequel. nominations that it got and okay, I, Troy, the gazillion I, I, dollars it made. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I have failed the podcast. I will put in my two weeks. I'm sorry. No, no. Hey, look, I for for we have a Don Lee clause, so apparently we have a David Fincher clause too. Hey, at this point. that that's totally fine with me. All right. Well, well hey, let, let let me jump in here because I think I'm partially to blame for this. You know, Josh, I take accountability for. <laughs> we things never that blame the, the guests. Yeah. Never. <laughs> it's not your I mean, fault. You've only, you've only asked us to do this since like episode two after we well, did Coneheads. So. Yeah, I mean, honestly, guys, like if you, uh, hi, I'm Josh, by the way. I yeah, Brad, I'm introduce our guest. This is already a train wreck. <laughs> uh, the man with lots of tattoos. This, the movie we're talking about tonight is actually one that uh, pretty much got our friendship started. Honestly, I mean, this is the this is the movie that made me contact you guys. Really? Okay, I thought it was yeah. Coneheads, but. Uh... Well, I mean, you know, I, I responded to the Coneheads episode, but I made a suggestion. I was like, hey, if you guys ever want to talk about this movie, I'll gladly come on your show and talk about it. And two years later, here we are. Well, let's, let's take a step back and let's formally do this. Brad, do you want to introduce our guest this evening? Because yeah, some people I'll, may know I'll, his I'll voice. This, I'll make yeah. the same joke I did uh, twice already. Uh, I was going to call him the boy with mini tattoos, uh, Josh Browning from the, uh, <laughs> the VHS Files podcast. Josh, thank you for coming. Thank you for suggesting this fantastic bomb that you suggested. <laughs> Just the girl bombed the dragon tattoo. so bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you only got a couple of bombs in uh, in this particular filmmaker's territory. So I think we've uh, covered them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I before we dive into this, so this is all part of our Noir Vember event, and we we specifically decided to concentrate on neo noir. So it's stuff that would take place late 60s onto uh, current cinema. 
Now, Josh, I know you specifically wanted to come on and talk about David Fincher in this film, but Mm -hmm. I got to start with this question. Where do you stand with film noir as a genre? I mean, do you like it? Do you have any favorites? Um, where, where, Where does this sit with you? Well, I mean, I, I love the genre. I mean, it's, it's definitely one that I'm interested in and am trying to, uh, soak up like a sponge. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm well versed in the genre, uh, but I do like, especially some of the new, like neon noir stuff, like drive Brad and I have talked about drive on our podcast. Um, and, uh, I, I'm actually going back this month. I've been watching noir movies all month and I've been going back and watching like, uh, we did Stanley Kubrick's the killing Ooh. and, um, I finally sat down and watched double indemnity, which was amazing. Oh, is it, was um, that a first time watch? That was a first time watch oh, for me. Yeah. I'm so jealous. I love that film. And, uh, so yeah, I love it. I love, I love the whole, you know, drab sort of style to it and and the mystery that's usually involved so it's right up my alley it's just again you know there's there's some movies that i have put on the back burner in place of others so i'm trying to catch up this month that's awesome so brad did did you happen to catch any i know you did a little trip to denver so that took away some movie watching time but i i did any film noirs that you squeezed in so I, I I did my big three from Orson Welles. I did Touch of Evil, The Stranger, Ooh. and Lady from Shanghai. Okay, which are three of my favorites. And yeah, uh, so I, once I'll I just, watch Touch of Evil, I've got to do The Stranger. Then I've got to do the girl from Chang or the lady from Shanghai. So it's just one of those things where I can't watch one without the other three. Okay. Is Citizen Kane considered a film noir? Eh, I mm, I don't think so. Not not in the traditional sense. Yeah, I not also, in the traditional sense. Yeah. I also watched that for the first time this year. <laughs> Holy shit, Josh! <laughs> he's he's got some catching up to do. Did you yep. did you think it was brilliant? Please tell me you thought it was brilliant. I, I was a little a little cold on it, honestly. Um, I would love to watch it again. I may not have been in the right mind frame when I watched it, but I remember feeling like it was a chore by the time it was over. But I mean, I can absolutely see why people hold it in high regard. Um, It just didn't hit me on that first watch. Okay. All right. Well, I'm one of my favorite, uh, I guess, duo of film noir is the Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake stuff. So um, I watched the glass key, I think towards the beginning of the month. I think this week I tackled uh, the blue Dahlia. Um, I, I just, I love those two. I mean, Veronica Lake is, is one of my favorite actresses. And then I've been trying to get through a little bit more of the Kino, uh, film noir box sets. Um, when they go on sale, folks, like just grab them. I think there's like 10 or 12 of them now. And usually when Kino has a sale, you can get it for like $24. But I, I think I watched witness to murder. What was the other one this week? It was sort of a light movie week. Cause I had to squeeze in that Martin Scorsese film, which was, I don't know, six hours long. It was fantastic. <laughs> I guess that would count as uh, modern noir, right? Yes. Yeah. So, well, let's dive into this one. There, there's a lot to unpack with this week's film. And um, Brad, let's let's go back to 2011 when this movie bombed, when it was released. And uh, let, yes. let's go through the numbers and, and talk about what you could have seen um, when David Fincher had um, unleashed this second film on uh, uh, its original source material. So let's go. Yeah. So it was released in the United States, December 21st of 2011 
with a reported budget of $90 million, it makes $102.5 million domestically. So kind of a light domestic return. So oh, obviously wanted, a bomb. Obviously yeah, just a, bomb. a huge yes. bomb. Yeah. Uh, and then internationally, it makes one thirty for a grand total of $232.6 million. So, uh, okay, I, Brad, I don't know. I, I don't know if we've even mentioned that we're talking about the girl with the dragon tattoo yet. I don't think we've actually said the name, but my question is, is this you guys is like highest box office return film that you've covered so far? <laughs> well, it, it would be the only one that uh, actually made a lot of money. So, <laughs> well, so it, that is a good question because we've had a couple of movies specifically um, Chinese films or, or take, you know, any of the Don Lee stuff we've, we've talked about. Um, I, I think this might be one of the highest ones. This might be the highest grossing bomb we've ever done per like per budget, right? Like return on investment. Like we've had, right. I think John Carter technically did a little bit more than this, but it was it cost also it. cost. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, I think, the difference between budget to uh box office return. I think this is the uh, biggest uh, variation we've had. Yeah. yeah biggest big, bomb. We've biggest had. bomb. Terrible. Uh, yeah. Terrible returns. Uh, just for a little context, the original, which came out two years earlier in 2009, had a budget of $13 million and made 104 million globally. Yes. Um, more, more on so, that in a little bit. Yeah. More on that in a little bit. Um, opening weekend, we have uh, $12.7 million, which would be a little worrisome, I would think, if you have uh, a $90 million budget, but this thing did have some legs to it. Um, that's good enough for third place. And it gets beat by two films. The first one, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Oh, and Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Okay. Which I feel like that Sherlock Holmes from the second one like came and went. I know it made a lot of money, but I don't know well, if anyone really talks about the second one. According to your math, it might be a bomb as well. It might I don't be, know. It might be yeah. on this podcast. Stay <laughs> I, know, I know I've watched both of those Sherlock Holmes movies, but they are, I could not tell you anything about them. <laughs> I don't them. remember anything about I like the first one. I like the first yeah. one a lot. I don't remember much about the second one. Uh, not only is uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo 2011, a uh, financial bomb? Question mark. Terrible, uh, terrible. It's also a critical bomb. Yeah, uh, it sits at an eighty-six percent. Oh my goodness! And an eighty-six <laughs> percent with the audience. Just bombs everywhere. Uh, you could argue please. that it should be a hundred. So okay, so there's a bomb there. <laughs> okay, well, please tell me in your professional life you don't work with numbers. Oh, uh, every waking moment of my life, Troy. <laughs> well, so. shit. <laughs> There's a problem. Uh, all right. Um, I was even going to say, I was even going to throw it out there that in the court of public opinion, this movie is a bomb, but obviously that's what case court. <laughs> what court? <laughs> the guy comes uh, off a of social. Never mind. Okay. Keep going. We'll, we'll get. All okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I could argue this. Mm-hmm. MovieGuide.org thinks this film has <laughs> oh, there. Bomb. There it is. Okay. There we go. Okay, we'll spin it that way. Do we do we get to guess <laughs> before you start? I'm sorry. Do we get to guess before you start? Oh yes. Uh, yeah, because they had to. Troy, we all know what this is on their scale. Uh, for those not familiar, MovieGuide.org is. Are you are you going to hit the button? Oh, hit, I'm hit, sorry. Yeah. Button. All right. Is a uh, is a Christian website. 
that uh, reviews films not for their quality but for their content and they use a plus four to minus four scale uh, minus four is you're piercing your nipples and dyeing your hair plus four is you're going to heaven gentlemen what do we think the girl with the dragon tattoo sits on their scale I mean, obviously, it's a plus four. It's it's absolutely a plus four. This, this film's a masterpiece. Well, given Brad and his math, I'm going to go plus four as well. <laughs> so well, um, Okay. We all know it's a minus four. It's the most minus four thing I think shocker. they've ever done wow. in their okay. entire life. Right. Here's the headline. Bloated, wasted NC-17 effort full of brutality and revenge. <clears throat> oh, boy. This is a... We're only going to do a little bit of this because it gets, it's a lot. Okay. <laughs> what do you think the first sentence is? Or the, I'm sorry. Pagan worldviews. Pagan worldviews. Very strong pagan, slightly mixed worldview with some humanistic, moral, biblical, and Christian elements about a 40 year old missing person case where the missing person is said to have become a religious Christian before she disappeared and leaves behind biblical clues about where she may have happened to what it may have happened to her, but also anti-Semitic killers seems to be using some Bible verses from Leviticus to brutally murder Jewish women, according to various punishments in scripture. Male pro protagonist Christian's daughter prays silently during a meal with him and then leaves him an important clue featuring the religious aspects of the murder case he's investigating. Title character and main protagonist hunt down a serial killer. Uncle and niece share strong family bond. Light! Anti-Nazi content. Light? <laughs> yep. Okay. All right, sure. <laughs> are, are, are they are they saying like they shouldn't be anti or they didn't go hard enough on the Look, anti? I don't know where this website okay. is going sometimes. I can't figure it out. I mean, they, they could have gone harder, but I think there's no, not anything put in a positive light about Nazis in this movie. Yes. Uh, content exposing at least one anti-Semitic killer plus strong uh, homosexual elements where female lead appears to be bisexual. Appears? I is. Know, is is by <laughs> flat out yeah. and is showing I mean, there's, kissing there's... and touching a woman in a bar and waking up next to her in the morning yeah and strong feminist subtext of empowering women who would like to get revenge on their male abusers uh 10 obscenities and three strong profanities including jesus or christ extreme violence okay and then that that, you know, that goes into all the detail but yeah minus four Wow. Okay. <laughs> I did not like it. Okay, Apparently. Troy. And right. lastly, yes. some more bombs you could have seen in December. These of terrible films like Mission Impossible, who bombed terribly in yeah. December. Uh, we have Shame, so we could see Michael Fassbender's Dong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not, a bomb, not a bomb there. Uh, <laughs> oh, it was a bomb. It was, it was oh, a big yeah, bomb. So he, whew, he dropped a bomb, bomb on, on me. You. <laughs> Uh, New Year's Eve, The Sitter, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, Young Adults, uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Chipwrecked, which makes 404. I have 404, so it might be on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, on its way to $741 million. Sherlock Holmes, Game of Shadows, on its way to $622 million. Um, and then we have We Bought a Zoo, on its way to $153 million. All these movies are making so much money. Too bad. Except this one. Tattoo couldn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. The Darkest Hour. Uh, extremely loud and incredibly 
close. Hey, the Darkest Hour bombed, I think. We could have talked about that one. War Horse, and that's about it. Lots of bombs. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the people who made this uh, cinematic bomb. It it gets crazy from here. I mean, if if you thought that it was a bomb financially and also from the critics, just wait. But let, let's start with the people <laughs> wait behind. Wait till them. you hear about the schlubs they had behind yeah, the camera on this. A bunch one. of incompetent fools behind the camera. So I'm going to start with David Fincher. We have talked about him a few times already. You can uh, go Zodiac and Fight Club. Yes, Zodiac episode twelve. Fight Club was that this year? Episode one forty one. Okay. Um. And and just to give you a little context, so he does the social network in 2010. It does okay. It it bombs kind of like this one. <laughs> then uh, does the girl with the dragon tattoo in 2011, and then follows that up with Gone Girl in 2014. Now, Josh, yes, you were the one that brought us together to talk about this film. So I have to start with you. What is it about David Fincher that uh, makes you such a fanboy? Well, I've been a fan of Fincher since probably alien three. I mean, I don't hold alien three in that negative category. Like a lot of people do. Most people do. Um, the alien series was a big part of my childhood. I mean, I grew up watching all, all three of the first three alien movies a lot. And at the time, you know, I I had no idea who David Fincher was or anything. I just know I enjoyed alien three. And then when seven came out a couple of years later, uh, that's a movie that (laughs) stuck with me for, the rest of my days after that. Oh yeah. And uh, again, not knowing that it was David Fincher, I didn't really follow filmmakers or anything at the time, but you know, knowing that that movie, you know, stuck out in my brain and kind of scarred me on movies uh, that, that in 1995, um, once I started getting into film and discovering that David Fincher was making all these movies that have like challenged me and left impressions on me as, 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 as the films they are, um, I really got into David Fincher and I still hold seven in really, really high regard as one of my favorite films of all time. And the social network is probably in my top 10 of all time. Like I think the social really? network is, okay. is amazing. Um, and that's, that's been a recent development. Uh, the, the, I think the social network is a movie that has, you know, no action, no car chases, no violence, really. Like, it's a movie that still holds my attention without having any of those things that normally are what, what are holding my attention. Um, I think the dialogue in it is great. I think David Fincher as a filmmaker is is has such an eye for what he wants and has a vision for what he wants, a lot like your James Camerons and people like that. And uh, I, I just love that David Fincher isn't afraid to take a movie like this that has some very touchy things in it and some very violent, violent scenes towards women. And, and he's able to take those and run with them and make a compelling movie. And that's what I've always really respected about him. And that's what blows me away about the social network is again, you don't have any of that in that movie. And it's still so compelling to watch that movie and that story unfold. And I just think David Fincher is, is such a master behind the camera. And I just, I can't say enough good stuff about him. I I even love his bad movies. So oh okay, what you would like you curious cons- case of Benjamin Button? I, I you know it, yes, is it David Fincher's version of Forrest Gump? Sure, but I still enjoy watching it. I still love the journey he takes me on. Is that is that would you consider that as bad film or do you have a few? 
It would be on the lower end of the spectrum for me. Um, I mean, as much as I love Alien 3, it's probably towards the bottom. Um, probably, I mean, if, if any of them are on the bottom, it's probably Alien 3. Um, but that's still, again, I still like that movie quite a bit. So okay. um, so even his lower stuff, I still hold in, in pretty high regard. All right. That's fair. And Brad, I, we've talked about him. I, I think mm-hmm. you and I are both in the same camp. Um, it's it's fair to call him one of the best American directors currently working, right? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that today. I'm like, there are a handful of directors that now just go by one name. So, you know, you have Cameron, Tarantino, Fincher, Fincher Scorsese, yep. Spielberg, Nolan, Keaton. Like, those guys that just, you know, Kurosawa, one name. Ventures yeah. on that list. You yep. have to earn a one name, being a one name director. Unless you're Mick G, then fuck you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I agree with everything you said. 100%. Yeah, I, what, what does he have? One, how many films does he have? Say he's got 12 or something like that. Like the curious case of Benjamin Button, I just, it's, it's not for me, but you can't argue with the craftsmanship that goes into it. Like, I would if, watch if that's it your over. worst one. Like I, I would say people exactly. Can, yeah. I'd go, Hey, I still enjoyed it. And and even to Josh's point with alien three, I can't, I can't say Fincher's whatever producer director cut or whatever that they released. The on assembly the cut? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I like if, the if theatrical even, as much as I like that one. I, yeah. And I mean, even with, even if you want to call it a David Fincher film, I mean, once that studio got hold of that movie and did what they did with it, he he's disowned it. So, I mean, he doesn't even regard it as his film anymore. So, but, and I thought, I think Mindhunter is a great TV show. House of cards was also, you know, so my Mindhunter kind of plays a role in why I wanted to talk about this movie too. Okay. No, it makes sense. I mean, as a producer director, so much talent there. So mm-hmm. let's let's talk about the the screenplay. So it's done by this hack named uh, Stephen Zalian. So we're talking about you know these these incompetent people who made this bomb. Listen, listen to uh, old Steve here. So uh, back in 1991, he does his film called Awakenings and uh, gets an Oscar nomination for best adapted screenplay. Then a few so years Robin later, Robin Williams, uh, Robert De Niro joint, right? Yep, that's right. Yep. So he follows that piece of garbage up with um, this little film in 93 called Schindler's List. And for oh. that one, he wins uh, Best bucket, Adapted Screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> then, uh, you know, about 10 years later, he's working with Scorsese. I don't know why. Um, does Gangs of New York from 2003. Gets another Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Then um, I know you love this film, Brad. Uh, I think it was a bomb as well. Moneyball from 2012. Yeah, huge bomb. Yeah, he wrote the <laughs> screenplay for that and got nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Troy, I'm going to say right here, Moneyball is the best sports movie ever created. Period. Okay, well, there you go. Of, but it was a huge bomb, so maybe it'll be on this podcast. Yeah, um, Irishman works with Scorsese again in 2019. Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. So, yeah, this guy gets nominated a lot. I will say, out of his resume, my favorite of his that I don't think people talk about, um, this might fall under the underseen kind of films that we we started the podcast trying to concentrate on, was a little film from 1993 called Searching for Bobby Fischer. I don't know if you guys have seen that film. 
I oh, yeah. probably saw it in 1993. Yeah. It, go back and revisit that thing. It's that movie yeah. was on HBO all the time. It's so good. I wanted to play chess because of Bobby Fisher. There you go. Um, so let's just keep going down this list. Cinematography by Jeff Cronenweth. Um, oh, hey, before we talk about Jeff real quick, one thing to keep a note, and we'll, we'll dive into this a little bit more. Um, outside of Steven and his credits for screenplay, um, this film is based on the novel The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The original Swedish title is Mansam Hater Kivnor, which is literally <laughs> Men Who Hate Women. Mm-hmm. It is the first book of the Millennium series, and it was originally a trilogy um, by Stieg Larsson. Do you like that, how he did that Sweden there? Yeah. Almost like the Swedish so, chef, right? Men Who Hate Women is such a better title. Um, yeah, I don't know. I Which kinda, I understand why they yeah. didn't. You can't yeah. call your movie that. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, let's go on to cinematography. So this guy, he uh, worked with Fincher the year before. Also, pause. We yeah. have a lot of listeners in Sweden. I'm so sorry that Choi offended you all. I'm I did I not say that right? Monsum Hotter Kivner. Is that popcorn and Chicken a boom boom, right? No. All of ours just unsubscribe. Okay. I I thought I got that pronunciation down pat. I practiced that one. Not the Swedish chef impersonation. Anyway, cinematography, Jeff Cronenwith. Um, works with Fincher the year before on a little film. I think you just mentioned this, Josh, The Social Network. And and guess what? He got an Oscar nomination for Best Cinematography. Now, oh. he yeah, he works on this I mean, one. And guess what? He gets an Oscar nomination for Best Cinematography for The Girl <laughs> with Dragon Tattoo. Isn't that crazy? Man, it's crazy, what man. A bomb. I, this bomb just getting all these at the academy. Oh, we're nominated. not done. Listen, let's let's go to the music department here. Uh, we get Oof. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Mm. So those names. Let, let's talk about Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Oh, I didn't know <laughs> this. So Nine Inch Nails, right? But Atticus mm-hmm. Ross, he became the only official member of Nine Inch Nails outside of Trent Reznor in 2016. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So these two won a Grammy Award for Best Score Soundtrack for Visual Media for their soundtrack to, guess what film? The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, this little bomb that we're talking about. They won the but, Academy. But, we, but we, can't, we can't just scoot over the fact that Social Network was their first score with Fincher. And that score is one of my favorite scores of all time. Well, it's funny you bring that up because they won an Academy Award for Best Original Score for that film. Mm-hmm. And uh, they won a Golden Globe and Academy Award for the soundtrack to Pixar's Soul. Yep. So these guys know what they're doing, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, he couldn't get any Grammy nominations with uh, Nine Inch Nails, so why not go for the Oscars, right? Yeah, he's getting Grammys for his work on the on the films, right? <laughs> I don't think the Academy really, uh, Grammy's really not, uh, let me fuck you like an animal. Not really going to get a lot of, uh, got a lot yeah. Of love. yeah, true. Well, Hey, let's, let's stick on this topic of Oscars for this little bomb. So here's some other people who worked behind the camera who got some recognition from the Academy. So this film did win one Oscar. Can you believe that this little $200 million bomb with an 80% just critics blowing, blowing my mind left and right. Here. Yeah. Do you know what, do you know what the Oscar it, it best took editing. home? Yes, that's right. Oscar winner, best achievement in film editing, Angus wall, Kirk Baxter. It was also nominated for best achievement in sound mixing. That went to mm-hmm. David Parker, Michael Semenik, uh, Ren Kleiss and Bo Person. 
And it got another Oscar nominee for Best Achievement in Sound Editing, and that went to Ren Kleiss. So there you go. Uh, was it nominated for Best Costuming as well? Or uh, no. no. Okay. No. There's one other nomination. We're going to get to that when we turn our attention to the people in front of the camera. You guys ready to go there? Yes. Okay. Let's do it. All right. So let's. I, I only want to concentrate on two names. We'll name some other people that are in this film, but let, let's spend a little time with two people. Let's start with Daniel Craig as Mikhail Blumfkvist. Is that right? Blumfkvist? <laughs> Blumquist. So leading up to this film, Quantum of Solace was 2008, also Defiance of 2008. In 2011, Mr. Craig was super busy. Yes. He does Cowboys and Aliens, which was a bomb, Dreamhouse, The Adventures of Tintin, and this film, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. He follows this up with another James Bond adventure, Skyfall in 2012. Again, which plays a very important part in the story of this movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to start with you, Josh. I mean, Daniel Craig, is he a favorite? What do you think of him as an actor? Is he is he just James Bond only? Oh, no, no, no. I wouldn't put him in that category. I mean, I was I was definitely a bigger fan of this than him as Bond at this point in time. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I I I you know, anybody who listens to our show or shows that are on our channel, um I, I do a podcast with our friend Nathan watching the old James Bond movies. I was never really big on James Bond and didn't really. I mean, I watched the Daniel Craig movies, but, you know, I wasn't, you know, a Bond fanboy or anything. And I liked what Craig was doing, but it wasn't one of those things where it was like, oh, like, it's amazing. Jane, Daniel Craig is Bond. Like, OK, I mean, he's a he's a decent James Bond. But I mean, I I probably hadn't seen him in much other than Bond in this at that point. Like, I, I wasn't really following him super super hard oh, okay. at this point. What about you, Brad? Uh, I remember renting layer cake. Ah, that's, that that yep. was the, that was the film. I was like, this dude, if I could have bought stock in Daniel Craig in 2004, I would have bet the entire house on him. I was a big fan of layer cake. That's where I discovered him too. I haven't seen that one. Oh, Ooh, Josh, do yourself a favor, man. Yes. Mm. Uh, I, I love him as a bond. I think he's one of the best. I love that, that Craig, I mean, He's having a lot of success with Rian Johnson right now with his little murder mystery stints. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that Daniel Craig, from an acting perspective, I think can pretty much do anything at this point from the comedy to the drama, to the action. Um, He's, I, he is very underrated as a comedic actor. Lucky yes. Logan. Lucky, yeah. Logan lucky or Logan lucky. Yeah. Very funny. And then his glass onion, you know, knives out is super funny. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 you know, coming after all, you know, coming after dragon, dragon tattoo, like he only went into the upper echelon. So of course, like I, I love him in knives out. I, I think he's hilarious in that. And I did really like his performance in Logan lucky as well. Yeah. So good. So good. So that leads us to, um, the, the person in front of the camera who was nominated for best actress. She didn't win. Uh, for the girl with the dragon tattoo, and that's Runa Mara as Lisbeth Salander. So what's funny is uh, before this, she was actually nominated for Best Supporting Actress for a film called Carol in 2015. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't know her from this film, I, I would say it was about a year before. Um, yeah, I mean, she's pretty – I, I want to say she came on the scene about 2005 – she really didn't become popular to what 2010. So we got the nightmare on Elm street stuff. Social yeah, that network. was the first place I really saw her. 
Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know what you guys think about her. I, I, I love her. I think she's, she's a, again, another versatile actress, but Brad, where, where do you stand on, uh, uh I mean, her s- two scenes in social network are pretty spectacular. Mm. And that's when I was like, wow, she, she's got something for sure. Um, I can definitely see why Fincher would take her from, uh, Erica Albrecht and, and take her into Elizabeth Salander in, in this. Cause that performance she did in social network was pretty amazing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she, she kind of steals both the scene she's in, in that movie. Yeah. Um, just a couple other names. We'll, we'll power through this real quick. Um, well, I, could, yeah, go ahead. I love how in this film, so Rooney Mara goes all in. She gets her nipples pierced for this film. She does all this stuff. I don't, she really didn't get the dragon tattoo, but pretty damn we're close to it. Yeah. Daniel Craig couldn't even bother to try a sweetest action in this. He was like, you know what? No, I'm not even going to. Here's Rudy Morrow getting your nipples pierced, Robin Wright, your eyebrows. Robin Wright was in the same boat. Yeah, like she like, tries nah. for the first few minutes, and then after that, it's like, oh no, fuck no, it. No, <laughs> listen, like, if 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 it if it doesn't work for you as an actor, it, exactly. Like I am, oh, I am totally okay with Daniel Craig. I mean, but they could have just been like, yeah, I was born, you know, I was born and blah blah blah. But they didn't, which is fine. Like totally fine. I just love how she was like, I am going all in on this character. I'm going to become this character. I'm going <laughs> to pierce my nipples. I'm going to bleach my eyebrows. I'm doing this stuff with my hair. And all of that makes the the aftermath of this movie fucking heartbreaking and we'll get to it after we start talking about the movie but like Rooney Mara is the MVP of this movie like Daniel Craig who like he he is definitely the second to her in this movie in my opinion for sure (laughs) yeah we're showing our cards I mean we'll we'll talk about the highlights of the film and I I don't I I think if you're a fan of this film you're going to be a fan of her and and she is one of the reasons to watch this so a, a couple of other reasons to watch this Christopher Plummer as Henrik Wanger, mm. Wanger, um, Stellan Skarsgård has a great performance in here as his brother yes. Martin Wanger. We get Robin Wright. Um, Julian Sands shows up in some flashback sequences. R.I.P. Yep. And if uh, if you're not paying attention and you blink, you might miss Joel Kinnaman. So he shows up in a couple of scenes. A lot of other people in here, but I just wanted to concentrate yeah. on those names. So, just, just just in case anybody starts fact fact checking you, Troy, mm-hmm. um, uh, Stellan Skarsgård is the nephew to Christopher Plummer's. Uh, oh, nephew. Yes. Excuse his, me. Yeah, You're right. his brother, and then that's his son. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I I do. I will say this for anybody who hasn't seen it. I'm not saying this is like Game of Thrones uh, family tree kind of <laughs> stuff where you need a notebook to find out what's going on half the time. But it does help for you to pay attention and, and understand the relationships because they they are important to how the mystery uh, are they are they I think when one guy comes on screen you're like oh okay mystery over <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about production development I want to I want to talk a little bit about the book and then I do want to kick it over to you guys to talk about why this didn't continue so real quick the original novel so like we said this was based on um, a trilogy of books right. So the original novel was a big hit. It won Sweden's Glass Key Award in 2006 for Best Crime Novel of the Year. And, and it should be noted that this was his first ever novel. Like, this yeah. was the first book the guy ever wrote. Yes. Did Have you guys you wanna, read the trilogy? 
Um, I have not. My my wife has read them, and she has given me a little bit of information on them, but I have not read them. Same here. And I also know that there is a big legal battle with the way rights work in Sweden. Yes. And the family and the wife have been going at it, which is why we've never... Apparently, he's got a lot of uh, manuscripts. Undeveloped for, manuscripts. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's not going to do anything because she won't get any of the money. So... If you want to go down that rabbit hole, I think that's pretty interesting uh, as well. Yeah, and not to go down that rabbit. There, there are other books about the Millennium um, Universe outside of these three, written by somebody else. But this film, this this book, when it and that's came, in reference to the magazine, right? Like to the magazine, the, correct? Okay. Yep. Yep. So this book, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, sold more than thirty million copies by twenty ten in the United States alone. It sold more than 3.4 million copies in hardcover ebook formats and then had hit 15 million by June of 2011. And I so I don't know if you know this. Here's the inspiration of it. Larson spoke of an incident which he said occurred when he was 15. He stood by as three men gang raped an acquaintance of his named Lisbeth. Days later, racked with guilt for having done nothing to help her, he begged for her forgiveness, which she refused to grant. The incident, he said, haunted him for years afterward and in part inspired him to create a character named Lisbeth, who was also a rape victim. The veracity of the story had been questioned since Larson's death after a colleague from Expo magazine reported to Rolling Stone that Larson had told him he heard the story secondhand and retold it as his own. The other now, so it's in question of, you know, the validity of that story. But the other thing is the murder of Katrine DaCosta was also an inspiration when he wrote the book. So we've mentioned this a little bit. The movie, um, the first version or the first movie of the novel came out in 2009. And in fact, all three movies came out in 2009 and they were adaptions of the first three books. And so they were all released in the same year. TV films, I believe. Yes. Um, yeah. And you, you can find the theatrical version that kind of was distributed in the U.S., but they also have... I guess you would call the unedited original TV versions are much longer, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the original and 2000... And that's where we got Nomi Rapace as yes. well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And just, I was going to go there. So the original 2009 film was directed by Danish filmmaker Niels Arden Oplev. And the main characters were played um, by Mikkel uh, Nickvest and Nomi Rapace. So those were the original actor and actress of the role. Um, I would do this for anybody really interested in the film. There is an incredibly in-depth special look. I mean, it's over four hours of interviews and features about this film. If you grab the Blu-ray on top of that, you get a David Fincher commentary. That's it's really good. Mm-hmm. It's extremely He's, informative. He might be one of the best on commentaries. Mm-hmm. I, I think this would be the movie that if I were going to make a case of like, who is one of the, you know, top five directors who give audio commentary, I would submit this film um, yeah. as proof or evidence for that. Now this thing bombed and you would go, well, why didn't they make the American version of these, uh, the second and third book? Do you guys want to get into this real quick? I mean, well, I- go ahead, Josh. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, this is a big reason why I, I suggested talking about this movie, mm-hmm. um, because when I saw this film, I thought I had no interest in these in these Swedish films. Um, I, I had, probably didn't even know they were around at that point. Um, but when I saw this film and especially the way this film plays out, I was uber excited to see where this story was going to go. 
And the fact that it just sat and didn't go anywhere for the longest time, I was like, what, what, what is the matter with Hollywood? Like this movie needs to continue. And, um, I have been perplexed ever since not getting a sequel to this as to why it happened. Um, I have found some YouTube videos that have provided, provided me with some pretty, pretty crazy information about why it never got developed. And, um, it's, it's a, it's a tragic story to be honest, especially for some of the actors involved. Okay. You Brad, do you want to give the 50,000 foot? version well i mean they were going to do the girl who played with fire and the girl who kicked the horn and says back yes. to back um and then it, it kind of sat for a while then they brought on andrew kevin walker to like rewrite some of the scripts and it it, it kind of turned into be extremely different from the book extremely like yeah. so it, it was only going to be the the book title pretty much yeah yeah um well, it all kind of it all kind of started with a, a little movie called Skyfall <laughs> yeah. that sent Daniel Craig into superstardom. I mean, Skyfall came out and, and blew people away. It was one of the best James Bond films ever. And yeah, James Bond home alone. How, where, where could go wrong? <laughs> and uh, after that, you know, coming back to the, to the millennium series was like, uh, Craig was, itching for a bigger paycheck after that. And that's a lot of the reason this didn't continue, at least continue with him. Yeah. I I think it's a combination. Like Brad said, there were big problems with the script behind the scenes and nobody could settle on the direction that they wanted to take it. Uh, And then you, I mean, if you think about it, the people in front of the camera and behind the camera, this is a kind of lightning in a bottle to get that much talent on a film. Mm. Yes. And to get it done for two more movies, that was going to cost a pretty penny, especially for things that occur like Skyfall, et cetera. I mean, and David, David Fincher is prolific in Hollywood with coming to the studios with a budget for a movie and they always want him to do it for cheaper. But he is the kind of director that will say, I will do it for this amount of money. If you won't give me this amount of money, I won't do it. And that kind of played a part in where this went as well. And he has a reputation for, you know, being a hundred take guy, but he's always on budget and always on time. Um, and I know we, we, we went over David Fincher already, but it is sad for me because I think Mank is a brilliant movie and I really like the killer as well. I didn't get to see either of those in the theater. David Fincher is one of those directors that you want to see in the theater, but after gone girl, it seems like studios just didn't give him creative freedom, which you're like, well, what else do you want from this guy? And Netflix did. And so he's able to do, I mean, make has been something he's wanted to make for pretty much his whole career. And he finally got to do it with Netflix. Um, It's just, it's a weird thing to see arguably one of the greatest contemporary directors on a streaming service. You're like, you're so much bigger than that, but they're letting him do what he wants. And I, and I, yeah. yeah. Going yeah. back to alien three, where the studio fucked with his whole deal. He still like that. Still, he still holds a grudge to studios from his first film to now, even through everything he's done. And I, I mean, I think Netflix just lets him do what he wants. And I think he values that creative freedom more than kind of that prestige of having it in the theater. Um, someone like Nolan would scoff at that, but Fincher's like, no, just let me make what I want to make. 
Well, Fincher also embraced digital filmmaking pretty yeah. early on too. So he's not he's not the film nerd that Tarantino and Scorsese and all of them are. I think Scorsese is even working digital now. But mm-hmm. like you know, David Fincher has no qualms about working with digital. Like, and that's that's Netflix bread and butter. You know? Yeah. No, I mean it's it it. I would have liked to have seen what they would have done with the same talent behind and in front of the camera. It would have, I mean, for, so they spent 90, if you do back to back, you can save a little bit of money, but I think you're still doing for both films. I bet it's like $200 million for both those films together. At at least more given to Josh's point, some of the stardom that people are experiencing. I'll, yeah, I'll and say Mar- Laura's probably asking for more too because yeah. you see her in this film and you're like, well, she you got an Academy Award for it or a nomination for it. So, yeah, and I mean, she she absolutely earned her paycheck in this movie and earned the right to ask for more moving forward. Um, but you know, her story here is the saddest because, like you said, Brad, she poured herself into this role. She was very much attached to this character and wanted to continue doing it. Um, the Sony leak that happened uh, a couple of years after this, um, apparently some emails were found during all of that and sort of detail how the process of trying to develop the sequels went. And, you know, Fincher was working with Netflix on House of Cards and they started having meetings about turning the, the films into a series on Netflix. Um, but for whatever reason, those talks turned into a series that was not going to have Rooney Mara. Mm. And they kept her in the dark about that, apparently. And it, it it pisses me off because, like you said, Brad, like the fact that she did as much as she did for this role. I mean, this is equivalent to Sigourney Weaver in Aliens. Like it's one of those kind of roles for Rooney Mara. And the fact that they kept her in the dark as to where they were going with this and I don't even know to this day if they've ever like completed like negotiations with her about where they were going to go with this. Uh, I know, you know, the, the writer Larson had died and then there was all of the, uh, the writing of the, the girl, who the, the spider web book. I can't remember the name of that one, but the girl um, on the spider's web. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, that was going to be developed and they were like, Oh, well maybe we can take that as a jumping point and use that to move our story story forward. And, um, but it just got so muddled up and money became such an issue. Also, Sony was apparently not very happy with David Fincher's promotion of the film either. Wow. So there was a lot going on behind the scenes and I did not know a lot of this until very recently. And I have just always been very upset that I never got to see David Fincher's vision of how this story would play out. I, I will say this, uh, the film version that we're going to talk about tonight is very close to the film version that originally came out in 2009, which is extremely close to the book. Yep. So if you find um, the Elizabeth character very fascinating in her relationship and you find uh, you want a good mystery, I would strongly, and I know Brad, you've seen the films. I don't, have you seen the original films, Josh? <laughs> I've seen the first one. Uh And the second one, and I've never finished the trilogy. Okay, go back and finish it. I I think it's one of those, the third one really ties everything together very nicely. Mm -hmm. And and when we talk about, you know, trilogies in general, this this is one of the best ones out there. And the the books are fantastic too. 
Um, you can't go wrong. They're, they're, they, <laughs> they got some stuff going on in them. So obviously <laughs> if you're okay with what you saw here, you'll, you'll be fine with the other two movies, but I can't, I can't say yeah, enough. I mean, you got to go back and, and do the original trilogy. They're, they're great to watch. I mean, I'll, I will kind of put a target on my back here. Like I, I sort of held a grudge when I knew that this wasn't going to be getting a sequel. And I purposefully just sort of like didn't watch the original movies because I, as a Fincher fan, wanted to see the continuation of this story through his eyes. And, uh, you know, I was I was holding a grudge for a long time. And then I finally started watching the original ones. And it also plays a point like while those are going to tell the story and are probably a little more you know connected since they're in the original language and whatnot. But like I because I had seen Fincher's version first and I am such a Fincher fan, like those films don't hold a candle to the production of this movie like this movie looks uh, and no this, no this this movie <laughs> looks amazing sounds amazing like i don't i don't disagree it's a bomb <laughs> no listen I, I this is one thing we're not going to do is um i i don't i i'm assuming well i don't know so you saw the fincher one josh before you saw the other two yes you haven't finished yes. it did did you see the originals brad first or Fincher's? Yeah, original. I watched the originals with our buddy Charlie. Okay, yeah. So I saw the originals before Fincher's. I'll say this, they're both great. I mean, you you don't have to like discredit one to enjoy the other. They have a different look and feel. Um and I will say this, very similar to when we talked about one false move last week, um talking about director Carl Franklin. Um Fincher has amazing actors and actresses, has an incredibly um, deep and intriguing screenplay. He was set up with success out of the gate for creating a good film um, with just the content. And yeah. I, I think depending on, like I said, you could watch both and appreciate both. And I think they both have a different style. And if you like a bit more grittier film, noirish, real, you might like the the Swedish ones more. If, if you want more David Fincher-esque style, you might like this one, but both are good. Both are really good. And, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not slamming those movies. It's just been the thing in my head that's kept me from watching them all this time is, you know, I was a bit butthurt not getting David Fincher's version of this. Oh, I get it. But this one bombed. The other three didn't. They were really successful. <laughs> right. Right. Um, all right. Listen, I want to get into this. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dive pretty deep into this film and uh, talk about it and, and see where we land on it. So stay tuned. A cup of whipped hot chocolate tastes great right now. Carnation's Cocoa Supreme, the delicious hot chocolate drink with the light, delicate flavor you like. Wouldn't a good hot cup taste good right now? Ask for a cup of whipped hot chocolate at our snack bar. Charles Bronson is a cop looking for a killer, and he's running out of time. Ten to midnight. I'm a mean, selfish son of a but I want a killer, and what I want comes first. We found some blood. He's lying. There was no blood on my clothes, and he knows it. When there is no justice, Charles Bronson is the law. Ten to midnight. From Canon Releasing, rated R. No one under 17 admitted without parent or guardian.
All right, we're back. Josh, let loose, man. <laughs> was this your? How many times have you watched this? Many, many times, sir. Um, okay. <laughs> um, Joshua. <laughs> it, uh, you know, and, and it's not, you know, it's it's not. It probably isn't in my top five Fincher films, honestly. But the the the, the amount of talent that's on display in this movie and the way they develop the story and tell the story is so captivating. And it's, it's kind of a, I mean, anybody who watches a lot of movies is probably used to the style of storytelling they're doing in this movie, but I find it very unique. Mm -hmm. And Brad, I mean, you even touched on this earlier. Like there's a lot to follow in this movie. I mean, and a lot of it is dialogue driven. There's not a ton of, "Quote unquote action and 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 crazy stuff going on. A lot of it is dialogue and and noir esque, you know, storytelling. Um, but it, it, again, like Fincher captures all of that in a way that keeps you so invested and intrigued in the mystery and the story that I can watch this movie." And every time I will notice something that he's done different with the camera work, or notice something he did differently with the art direction and like that's the things i love about these kind of filmmakers is how they put so much time and effort into those things and again like the performances here are all solid even the background characters um stellan skarsgård is scary as fuck once you once we find out what's going on with his character in this movie um and you know on first watch of this movie it can be a little much to take in. I mean, they're telling three different stories all at one time, basically in this movie. So I can see where that might turn a lot of people off to this film compared to some of Fincher's other work as well. But it's just one of those movies that it's, it was a movie that was so much similar to seven than anything he had done after seven that I think that's one of the reasons why I was kind of entrenched in it as well. It 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 wasn't afraid to go super freaking dark, and it goes super dark. And you know that's also the writing. I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna give Fincher all the credit for that, but he he's able to show us the visuals from the page in a way that that makes us sick to our stomach. You know. So and, I, I do have a question about that. I mean, there there are some really. <laughs> There's some hard scenes to watch in this, but yes. as many times you as you've seen it, does um, do you become a little desensitized to it, or does it still maintain the same impact on the seventh or eighth viewing? Well, I mean, I just watched it with Jenny, you know, Saturday night, and uh, those those scenes of her with her her guardian guy are mm-hmm. are still very difficult to watch unfold, um, and. Venture lingers on it for quite a while. Like sometimes you're like, okay, you could have cut a couple of there's like <laughs> there's like minutes this, earlier. There's the scene where like she kicks the door closed and you could end it right there and your yeah. imagination could take care of it. Yeah. And then they go back into the room. And when they go back into the room, you just like feel it in your stomach. You're like, oh shit, I'm gonna like they're gonna they're gonna show this because they had a perfect opportunity to cut out and yes. now they're gonna go for it. And they do. Um, but I mean, and as and as and as gross as this sounds, it really gives Rooney Mara a time to shine because 
she she sells the scene, man. I mean, it, I am scared to death for her in that scene. Well, I, 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 yes, in the shower scene is really heartbreaking. Yes, um, but it also pays off the vengeance part even more. Yes, yeah, for sure, it does, one hundred percent. But I mean. I was a little, you know, just going into this, only knowing that the book exists, I didn't know anything about the story. Um, that was, that was probably the hardest thing to grasp going into it was how it just really kind of throws you in the middle of this mystery. And then you're really just finding things out right along with Bloomquist and, and Lisbeth, like, and, you know, this is something Fincher did again in Mindhunter, which has a very similar sort of story as this one, like, he he did something with that show that was so compelling and yet didn't garner enough attention for him to continue doing it. And I mean that that's the biggest thing is is why you know I consider this movie a bomb is because they didn't get to continue it. And 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 you know there's a lot of factors go that played into that. And I know that now, but and 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 seeing this movie when I did and knowing. And wanting a sequel for it for as long as I did, it was just baffling to me as to why it never happened. But I, I've since got some closure on it. Um, but I, I still will watch this thing, even though the story doesn't doesn't wrap up. Like I will still watch it and and love every second of it. Like, what, what do you mean the story doesn't wrap up? So uh, that's interesting. Do you do you think this has trouble as a standalone film? Well, I think Fincher wraps it up in a way where it would be a very, you know, it's a very bleak ending mm -hmm. for, for Elizabeth's character. Um, but I so wanted to see more of her and see where her story went and, and her relationship with Bloomquist and, or Mikkel or whatever you want to call him. And, you know, you're a little heartbroken when this movie ends because you've seen these two grow attached to each other throughout the entire film. And now, you know, we're not going to get that version of where their story ends up. And I have not seen the girl, the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. So I don't know where their story ultimately ends, but, um, well, I just, I mean, let's, let's, let's say that the sequels never existed. Like there was one book, the girl mm -hmm. with the dragon tattoo, and there was nothing ever published outside of this original thing. Does it work on its own? Well, since I rewatch it so much, I believe it does. Okay. Um, but it's, it's that seed in my head that knows this story continued and I'm not going to be able to see Fincher's version of it. Um, but again, like maybe if, if, <laughs> if he knew he wasn't going to be able to make the sequels, he would have done a, a little bit of a different ending for it. But I think it does wrap up in a way where it doesn't leave many loose ends. Um, you can absolutely walk away from it being satisfied, quote unquote. Um, but it's it's a bleak ending for sure. Yeah, I, I, and the reason why I ask that is because the mystery and in a, in, a, in the twists that occur because there's a couple of twists, right? Right. Where this thing goes, you you first time watch don't really expect it, but it does come to a resolution, mm -hmm. and the Elizabeth character comes to a resolution as well. But it, it is classic film noir and classic neo-noir where it is almost a tragedy, right? Right, right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. And, you know, I, I do think it works on its own. It's just, you know, I would have loved to have seen it continue. Um, well, yeah, it's a sign of how good it is, right? You want the sequel. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you know, 
the mystery and everything like that's the other thing like when this movie begins you know we're we're set up with the 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 mystery of the the girl who was killed or quote unquote killed and then we go into Mikel's character then we go into Elizabeth's character and you've got three different storylines sort of converging all all together at the end and each one of those storylines well Mikel and Elizabeth's storylines lead to places that can that obviously go to bigger places we do wrap up the the mystery in this one but you know there's obviously a relationship between he and he and Elizabeth in this that i would have loved to have seen more of okay i like it all right brad what was what was your take this time watching it well what things that strike me just watching this because i've seen this a few quite a few times as well um it's like an hour and 15 minutes before our two main characters meet each other. Yep. And it's, you solve the mystery with like 30 minutes left in this film. So I, I think what I'm trying to say is like, there's a confidence with making this that, you know, your story is really, really good. You're like, I'm going to have these two badass characters and they're only going to come together for half the film. And they're going to solve the mystery and there's going to be 30 minutes to go after they solve that mystery. Uh, because I know that the story I'm telling is going to carry everything along for this two hour, and 30 minutes. And I just love the confidence in a film that does that. I also love that. Like this is a really adult films with adult themes and characters have sex. Like I, I'm not like looking for hardcore penetration in my films, but like <laughs> characters having passion for each other and, and, and having sex. It's like we live in a, a time where blockbusters are so sexless. Now it's like, when you yeah. see it, you're like, yeah, th- this could be a good way to, to tell a story because adults who are super attractive might want to fuck each other. Like a heaven forbid the two, you know, <laughs> adult you know, uh, consenting adults have sex with each other. And and all um, the relationships are messy. I mean, oh, when, yeah, you meet, when you meet Mikel, well, he's yeah. having, he's having basically a relationship with a married woman. Yes. And then he also has a relationship with a very younger woman. Yeah. Um, and then like how I many mean, you, uh, even Martin, like Martin has the girl who comes to visit when they're having dinner with Mikel and she's a married woman. Like every relationship in this movie is, is a, is a clusterfuck. Yeah. Yeah. But it also gives like, but then like they, on the other side, they use rape to show like in power, like who's in power and who doesn't have power. And then that power shifts because Elizabeth then wants to have sex with Bloomquist. And so like that power shifts. Now she has the power over him and they're like, they're doing all this dynamic stuff with sex and adult themes and all this stuff. And I just really think it all just works. And then like you watch this film and you just immediately feel cold. Like it is just the coldest film you've ever seen in your entire life. Cold, like temperature wise, but just like right. the yeah. way people are, it's so cold and off putting. If it wasn't it's, emotionally cold, I mean, just yeah. the, the sheer amount of snow that's in this movie yeah. will make you shiver. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and it is, it is just so it's a difficult watch. Like the, the rape scenes in this are so difficult, but like I was saying before, when she goes back in there and tases him, it, you feel so much gratification. Cause you know, this person is they're unhinged and what they're going to do to this guy, he deserves it, 
But oh, I and I love when she's talking to him. She's like, oh, "You want to call me insane? It's fine. I am insane." Like yeah. she she says it flat out. You know. Well, then yeah, but then she's like taking the power, but like all this empowerment, which movie guide apparently has a has a problem with you know mm. raping women not so much but if you give women some power they got a problem with that um do you but do you think those are the scenes that maybe the common viewer struggles with a little bit because you start with the premise the the main mystery is a reporter a disgraced reporter is hired to find out what happened to a, a, a niece from 40 years ago they don't know if she's what happened to her? She could be dead. Well, they, they assume she's dead. They assume yeah. she's dead. Um, but to your point, a good chunk of it. So maybe half of the movie is telling that story, but off to the side, you have the Elizabeth story. Now it does kick off because what sets things in motion is she is doing an investigation on him. Yeah. Um, yeah. which then that turns over and that that's how this, uh, rich industrialist ends up finding him. Right. Is from yep. her work, but you spend a big chunk of that time with, that sequence and what happens to her and et cetera. I, I would say the traditional moviegoer would be like, what's going on? Where's, where's the, why aren't we over here talking about the mystery? Do you think that alienates some people? And well, they that's don't what I was it? sort of touching on is there's a lot to, to dig into. There's a lot to kind of dip your toes in with the stories here and they, mm -hmm. they cross over with each other. And uh, if you're not paying attention, like you can't just walk into a scene in this movie and know what's going on. True. Uh, you you yeah. really do need to be paying attention. Um, and, you know, and unfortunately, I mean, even as long as this movie is, I still think they gloss over a lot of things. Um, well, yeah, they don't give you any sort of information on any of the other siblings once. Uh, and we'll get into it. Like once Stellan Skarsgård comes on screen, you're like, well. I, I I know who the bad guy is. Like there's zero <laughs> mystery to this film. And you know, okay. I mean, I, I will say honestly, like I I was shocked to find out he the reveal for him in that movie. Like, Are I, you it, yeah, I, yeah, I I didn't I didn't expect him to be the killer in it. Oh, he, uh, to me, it's like he walks on screen. You're like, well, I know exactly because they really don't spend any time on the mystery. Really, like, really, they're doing I, some investigative stuff. But once, like. They're not like looking into it, it. It seems very. They're they're moving pretty quick. Like I could. I guess, I guess we should have said we're going to spoil the crap out of this, oh, even though it's like a decade. <laughs> yeah, I, but like I could have used another half an hour on them just looking through documents and 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 looking at pictures and doing all that stuff. Um, the, they, pa the passage of time is where it does get muddled because. You know, there's within two seconds of the movie, four days have passed sometimes, you know, like it, it has to move itself along at a pace where it's like, OK, we have to we have to we have to think that the viewer can tell that it's been a week at this point. You know, yeah. um, I, 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 that's that's probably the biggest thing that muddles this movie up for me is uh, how quickly we have to move through it to get it to, to get where we end up in this movie. Sure. OK. But like the investigation stuff, it's, it's fine. Like it's fine. Like I think everything in this is. I, I'm trying to think in the in the pantheon of films that have come out that are like this, like sort of investigation, sort of deal. Like where I would put this, and I don't know exactly, um, but it's up there pretty high. Um, I think the one thing you have to be careful with, though, is. When you're making an adult movie, you're not holding the audience's hand very well. I remember the first time watching it and watching it in the theater is the reveal. They're having sex 
and they're thinking about all the scenarios. Well, you know, she didn't do this because she's probably dead. And then there's like, well, there's another scenario. And then you cut and then he's walking back into her investment bank and he calls her Harriet. Right. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, okay. Like it literally just says, okay, this is, she was pretending. And like, if you miss that, you're like, what the hell is going on? And again, this is like a movie made for adults and I am totally okay with that. Like it's, it's brutal. It's got sex. It's got violence. It's got torture. It's got all this stuff in it. It is a made for adult film. And I'm looking at it in like 2023 and I'm like, we've had great adult films like Oppenheimer, you know, flower moon, even like, I mean, Barbie is kind of like a more mature comedy. Like, like these films that are made for adults, I miss them so much. And I cherish (laughs) like watching them because it's like, they're doing something and they're saying something, but they're not like, they're not saying, well, okay, now we're here. Uh, we, we, we've now crossed these people off our list. They can't be the killer. Um, it, it's just very mature in the way it's made. And of course, like it's got all the flourishes that Fincher does and it does well. Um, and like Rooney Mara, like makes you kind of forget Rumi Rapace a little bit. Like it's hard. You could argue. I would listen to either argument of who plays his character better. And I would say either or is right. And for someone to come come in after someone has kind of defined a character and then redefine that character again in one film is kind of a task within itself. It's, it's pretty spectacular. Um, I think, I mean, you see her in this movie and you're just like, I don't know how this person is not a star seeing this performance. You're like, this person can do anything seeing her in social network and then seeing her expand that into this. It's like, I, you know, you can make kind of a, like a Nepo baby joke, but like, she's obviously got some talent. And so, you know, it's, you know, Christopher Plummer's in this playing the same role that he played in like uh, all the money in the world or whatever. But like, (laughs) it's, you know, it's, it's like top to bottom just performances. And then when Stellan, makes that turn in the house and he's talking about all I had to do is offer you a drink because people were, you know, when he gives them that speech, it is bone chilling. And then he takes us out to the torture chamber and you're like, this is going to end badly. That, Um, that scene with he and Mikkel in the basement and he's talking to Mikkel, Mikkel about how he can see the life like running out of his face. And he knows like that look you have on your face is the look they always give me. And he's like, I feel myself getting hard. Like that shit is creepy. And Oh, it's, it's, it's bone chilling, dude. Well, yeah. And like, and to be told that while you were here having dinner with me, I had some girl in a cage down here that that I just murdered her the next day or something, which on that first watch, if you're not paying attention, you don't realize it, but you know, especially watching it this time, like I was listening for it and yeah, like, you can kind of, you know, oh, maybe a door's open, but no, you can blatantly hear some screams coming from somewhere. <laughs> but like, I think my favorite uh, Elizabeth moment is when he is flipped over the car and she pulls out the gun and it explodes. And you know, he's probably suffering and she could shoot him, mm-hmm. make him suffer no more. But mm-hmm. no, she's going to let him burn up and, and, and burn like that and die like that. I was like, that 
I don't, I can't remember if that's in the other, the way it's told it there, but that is such a nice little, like this person just getting revenge on all these men, yeah. like letting him suffer for all that he's done. is just like the chef's kiss. And yeah. I mean, when she comes into the basement and clocks him with that driver, and it fucks I believe up it's his... a nine iron. No, okay, I'm not, a, I'm not a golfer. So I don't know. I, don't I think cool. he was using a. She was using a seven, Brad, oh, yeah, and yeah. a little bit more. But she, I mean, she messes his jaw up, dude. Like that. <laughs> that's a crazy visual, too. There are those little prosthetic, like um, makeup jobs that they do in this film that mm-hmm. you, you got to pay attention. And then when you, if you catch a glimpse of it, you're like, oh my gosh, that's gnarly. That's something I've always loved about Fincher is he's he's. You know, obviously he does some very shocking scenes like the scenes we've been talking about in this. But I mean, you know, you take a movie like Seven, which has a lot of grotesque stuff in it, but you never really see the violence play out on screen in those movies. It's always you have to imagine what happened. And like, you know, we see a lot of what happens. Right. Like we see a lot of what happens in this movie, but there's also, you know, we didn't see them kill all those girls over those years. And when you start finding out what they did and, and the way they killed these girls, you're like, Jesus Christ, this is fucked up. So does this movie count as like punk rock goth noir? Is, is it like its own like subdivision of film noir, neo noir? I don't know. I mean, I do think the character of Lisbeth is stands out in the cast of characters in this. Uh, she's she's supposed to be an outcast, and that probably did speak to a lot of people, and probably puts this film in its own little you know space. But um, yeah, like alternative neo noir. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It yeah. it feels very grunge at at parts or or punk yeah, rock, which is, which is awesome. <laughs> I mean, I love I love when he comes to her apartment and she's wearing the shirt that just says "fuck you, you fucking fuck." Like, <laughs> yeah. she's, she's so nihilistic. I want that shirt so bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just you know she she also brings a confidence to the character that's just like you know when he's telling her all this information at her apartment and he's like don't you want to read this? She's like, I got it. Like, you know, he, she's got the photogra- photographic memory. Like, and they don't and, beat you over the head with that. She just, there's a few things where she just says it. She's like, no, I got it. Yeah. Like any yeah. other, any other, they would be like, no, I have a photographic memory. I can just remember things. But the yeah, here well, with Christopher Nolan, we'd have three scenes explaining how it was going down. And this, you know, there's, there's subtlety to the uh, exposition. <laughs> this is true. Um, yeah, there, I'll tell you what, there's, there's a few things that stand out for me when I watch this. Uh, and, and I gotta be honest with you. The first time I saw it, I'm like, wow, that was really good. I wasn't blown away by it. it it's taken me multiple viewings to come and hold it at the level of, um, I think Fincher's other work. I, I think it deserves all the attention and accolades it received in 2011 for being a, as big of a bomb as it was. But, um, there, there's, there's a there, technical marvel at least then. Though. Yes. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I liked the movie when I first saw it, but it's definitely been those rewatches in the years after that have made me like grow to really appreciate. Yeah, it. I'm, I'm exact same way. And, and here are the things that continue like I have more of an appreciation for. So we've already talked about this, but um, outside of the performances, right, let's just talk about the Elizabeth uh, Salander character and her relationship with Mikkel. I think it's a really unique and fresh version of the detective character. Um, 
I in the fem, in the fem fatale. Yeah, right. it's a combination yeah. of the fem fatale and the detective coming together um, in that sort of punk rock grunge like guy. I mean, it it just has this tactile Troy, feel to if it. If she would have said something about pro gem in this movie, I would have creamed my pants. I know, <laughs> and and. Uh, Mara deserved the Oscar nomination. I agree with you, uh, Brad. I don't know between who got, who won that year. Oh, I don't know. I didn't. We know. I didn't go that oh, far. Boy. Brad can research it. Um, <laughs> and then we've already talked about this. Like we've already seen how well my research does. <laughs> yes. Um, the ending. I, I do want to spend one more second on the ending. So her developing that connection with Mikhail, and, and more on that in a minute. Um, but ultimately getting passed over for Mikhail's relationship with a married woman. That is a devastating ending for a woman who goes through everything that she does, finds a connection with the one man who treats her as an equal and right. trusts her with his life, et cetera, only tend the film choosing somebody else over her. To me, that is exactly what makes this one of the best neo-noirs like that ending and her character and where it goes. It's, it's crushing. It's heartbreaking, but it's kind of what you expect from this genre to a certain degree. Yeah. And, and, and that in part is probably why I'm, I'm, I was so upset with the fact that they didn't continue this. Like, yes, it does end on a very down note for the character of Lisbeth, but you've seen her go through so much in this movie that you, you really want to see her happy by the end of it. And they don't give you that. And, you know, I, I do love movies that give us downer endings. Trust me. Like La La Land is one of the like most heartbreaking freaking endings in the world, but I love it because it goes that route. Yeah. And that's, um, I think that's why I appreciate this as a standalone. Like I'm, I know you're going to hate this, Josh, but I'm kind of glad they did that. Fincher didn't get to make the other two, because if you were to just look at this as a standalone and divorce it from the trilogy, I think he made a fantastic neo-noir thriller with well, this almost well, Shakespearean tragedy that happens at the end for this um, for this female protagonist who went through so much. Well, well, let me, you know, let me say I would much rather have what we have mm -hmm. than them sort of, you know, I think it would be very insulting to give it to another director and let them take the helm. Like, Oh, absolutely. That, that would be my, like if they continued the story without Fincher, I would probably have even more issues. Oh, I agree. Um, yeah. Just because like, I feel like he, his vision for this story just fits so well and works so well that like, ultimately I, I will take this over them just bastardizing the story and giving it to some other filmmaker. I mean, they could have given it to somebody who could have done great with it, but like, yes, like I'm with you there, Troy. Like I would rather have what we have than, than something else that just would have been terrible. Yeah. I, I agree a thousand percent. And All then right, Troy, hold on. Yeah. yeah. What? <clears throat> yeah. My, my quick Google search here. Oh boy. Here we go. Okay. So I'm not going to say who won. I want you to tell me who you think won. All right. We have Meryl Streep. In the Iron Lady, Glenn oh. Close, Viola Davis in The Help, uh, Rooney Mara in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Michelle Williams, My Week with Marilyn. To remember who won. Oh, goodness. I feel like. I thought The Help kind of swept that year in some yeah, of those. But the Iron, but, it was Meryl Streep. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, it's, I think Meryl Streep won. I mean, okay. Yeah. Meryl Streep wins more than she doesn't. So, so <laughs> this is really going to, this is. What? Directing that year. Yeah. 
you have the uh, the artist with that Michael Hasenvar, whatever his name is, and then the I think the artist swept the Oscars that yeah. year. The Descendants with uh, Alexander Payne, Hugo, mm. Midnight in Paris, Woody Allen, and then the Tree of Life, uh, <laughs> and No Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and then of course the artist won that year. I like the artist a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't. I haven't. I like it. it more than this, but I did. Yeah. I do like it. So, so Fincher wasn't even nominated. Mm-mm. Not even nominated. No. Screenplay got it, but <sighs> oh, or no, screenplay man. didn't even get it on this one. Nope. That's right. More of the technical stuff. Well, so Fincher sorry. Fincher doesn't have any Oscars for directing. Uh, I thought he didn't get it for Social Network. I don't know if he did. Okay. No. I think it won screenplay. I think. I think. Uh, yeah, it it did win screenplay because. Uh, yeah, I no, think Alan no, no, Sorkin no. won the screenplay. It did not win screenplay. Oh no. Okay. Mm-mm. Hmm. It got, or it, maybe it got best original story. Uh, well, I don't know. Wow. Anyways, let's talk about <laughs> this one. So the other thing I appreciate about this on the whatever viewing it is is the mystery itself. Mm-hmm. So it's what happened to a wealthy industrialist niece more than forty years ago. You get the just classic film noir storytelling here. And I, I agree with you, Brad. There is a character that shows up and you go, oh, bad guy. But even they are smart enough to kind of go, well, that's not where the mystery ends. Like that is not the ending mm-hmm. of the mystery. Mm-hmm. There yeah. is that final twist, which I think adds to it. But here's the thing. I really like the fact that this whole mystery becomes this indictment of society at every level, every level. Um, Because you've got this side story about why Mikkel is like on the outs of the magazine Mm -hmm. and what he published and everything else. And here's the other thing is this movie has so many layers. So if you think about our protagonist, Lisbeth and our antagonist, and we'll say, um, the the person committing all these murders, you get this really interesting. Or you just say men or men, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you get this really interesting. Well, and, and that's a good point. There there is the commentary on power, men in power, right? Mm. But there's also another question that I think Fincher raises in this, which is: Are criminals the result of their upbringing? Because you learn about Lisbeth's past through some increments um, like dialogue here and there through the film. And she had it incredibly rough all the way up to the stuff that's happening with her social worker. And she's breaking the law, continuously breaking the law. Mm -hmm. Right. And even what she does to her social worker, it's deservedly so, but she obviously breaks the law. Right. Um, But you also have a killer in his relationship with his father, which kicked off, his path. And so you've got a protagonist and antagonist who kind of have this really messed up upbringing. And so he's asking the question, like, are, are they a product of their environment? Um, which, which again is, is this smart level of screenwriting that I I agree with Brad. You, You love this within these type of adult films where it's not just about the mystery, but it's also well, about it's the commentary. Like Jedi's versus the Sith, right? It's not, yeah. we're not all good and we're not all evil. And this really gets into that point of sure we can be good, but we also when pushed or 
Yeah. Hey, our father was a rapist, so more than likely we might be a rapist too. Like just because of our uh, environment we were grew up in. So leaning into into that piece is uh, like you were saying, just a really adult way to look at people. But they in, to make a film. They even delve into how like the son learns from the father's mistakes. And he's like, that was juvenile on his part. Like there's yeah. certain spots where he's talking about his father where he's like, Oh, well that was stupid of him. And I'm doing it more. I'm doing it smarter than he ever did. Like they, they delve into that psychology a little bit. And it's funny. You bring up you know Ryan Johnson earlier and how Craig's been working with him. I just rewatched looper oh, um, yes. for the first time in a while. And I was really hitting on themes there where they they're doing the same thing of the product of, your, of product of your environment and how you were raised and you know the the the, the path the rainmaker will take in that film and, and your younger self trying to kill your older self I mean, right like and that movie that movie is also super layered like that is a movie that I think is very very like under or oh, whatever no you no want to, no don't don't it did it wasn't a bomb. No, <laughs> I, I'm not going to call it a bomb, but I, I think underanalyzed. You know, yeah. yeah, like that's a movie that I think people that I think is underrated. Like I don't think people yes. talk about Looper enough. But it, it's it's interesting because you get these two characters, and and again, like all of us, you watch it multiple times. You start to ask this question: like, what would be the event, or what is it that ends up um, pushing Elizabeth down the path to where she becomes? something not not a serial rapist or serial killer or something of that nature but i mean she's teetering right on that brink of right. doing something incredibly uh just damaging to society the way that a serial killer does right well i mean we've already touched on it a little bit like every character in this movie is flawed i mean yes even even Miguel is doing illegal things and 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 not abiding by the law. That's why he's in a bunch of the legal problems he's in. Uh, he's, he's seeing a married woman. He's, he's got a marriage that's already fallen apart. Like no one in this film has really got it together. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it's just like, you know, human beings have problems. It's just some go down this path and some go down a completely different one. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting to, to pair those two characters up and set them against each other. And then yeah. the other thing is you get this this darkness and grim view of the world set against these, these really frosty white landscapes of Scandinavian countryside. Mm -hmm. And what's crazy is the film just looks like a postcard, like a, that you would find in, in some convenience store of, of that area, but it contains some of the most gut wrenching topics and, and just things that are happening in that, that countryside, which uh, again, I think it's, it's Fincher, doing this amazing visual representation of look at all this dark stuff set against this very white, pristine world. Right. Yeah. It, it kind of, it kind of calls back to um, the intro to blue velvet, you know, uh, David Lynch's blue oh, velvet yeah. where yeah. you, you open on this nice serene, you know, landscape of uh, a garden and whatnot. But as we go deeper and deeper, we get into the infestation of the insects in the ground. It's it's, it's this commentary on, the deeper you go, the darker things get. And yeah, I mean, I, I agree, Troy. I mean, I, I love the representation of that here. Yeah. And this thing deserved the film editing award. Um, think about yes. that sequence when he's going through the documents trying to solve the murder or the disappearance. And they get the documents merged with these flashback sequences as you're kind of being told the story 
through that. The editing during that entire sequence, during this film, is great. That yes. sequence really stands out to me every time I watch this. It's a it's a really creative use of like screen space to tell that story and make those mm-hmm. editing choices to kind of merge those things together. Um, and then couple that with the great dialogue. We've already talked about this. You get these lines like, um, I want you to help me catch a killer of women. As soon mm-hmm. as he tells her that, it, it sends you chills. Mm-hmm. Because that's exactly the person you want to recruit for your task, right? Right. Yeah, for a a, a a woman who, for all we know, has been every man in her life up to this point has failed her. Yeah, and Except her, re- for her basically her one who basically was is going to die, um, or had a stroke and and you know is incapacitated and can't help her. Yeah, but you know her father, her other tar- taker, um, yeah. Yeah, and her, well, re- her reaction to that line is is fantastic. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, and you know, even even the caretaker that she has that has the stroke, um, you know, she even says, you know, she treated him terribly. She didn't treat him the way he needed to be treated, and you know, you can kind of see her atone for that at the end of the movie when she goes to visit him. Um, so, I mean, you can see her growing as a character, and that's that's ultimately what makes the end of this movie such a gut punch. Is you kind of see her growing and developing, just to be just to be let down, you know. Yeah. Um, I do, I do, <laughs> I do have a couple problems with the film. Just just a few nitpicky. Okay. I want to get your guys' opinion. Notes to for this. David Fincher's here. Notes here for David go. Fincher. Well, <laughs> I. I think on, let, me, let me get him on the phone real quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, and I don't know if it's Fincher in and of itself, because I would kind of have the same problems with, I think the book handles it a little bit better. Yeah. Um, but I, here's the thing. I think this is an amazing example of film noir, but there's something as good as all these performances are, there's something distant and cold about the performances and these characters. Um, and again, I think it does stem from the material a little bit and it may be intentional, but well, arguably none of these characters like each other. Yeah. It, it, it is hard to kind of, even Lisbeth is supposed to be our hero. Mikkel's supposed to be our hero, mm-hmm. but there's obviously something about them that makes you not being able to relate to them to a certain degree. There's always this distance, right? You, you, mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't relate to them, but yet you are, you are, you're like gunning for them. Like you're, oh, yeah, you're totally you're, invested. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're invested and, in the story. I, I agree with you hundred percent. And like, you know, Miguel and Elizabeth are seemingly two people that should not work together, you know, like, so that brings me to my, yeah. So that brings me to my point. Um, so it, and this again, I don't fault anybody playing these characters, but this is always the problem that has set with me with the Elizabeth character. And again, it, it maybe the book has more room to get you there. Uh, but given all of her past experiences with men, her father, social worker, etc., it feels like she really um, turns on this ro- romantic relationship with Mikkel very quickly. And I know, again, that could be intentional with her feeling comfortable to kind of show power over that relationship. And I get it. But to me, it feels like there's just something missing to bridge that gap to make it feel a bit more organic in the storytelling. Because you spend an hour 
watching her deal with all of these men. And then mm-hmm. you get to that last part and she meets him and all of a sudden it just clicks with her. And it's like, Troy. Yeah. It's, it's Daniel Craig. It is. He is a boxer dropper. Um, <laughs> I mean, I will, I will, I will flip over my cards and it's going to say Daniel Craig. Yeah. Uh, you, you'd fall for Daniel Craig in regardless of whatever happened in your past. And, and you know, again, I get it. it does yeah. go awfully quick. I, I think it's due to the fact that she's had all these men fail her. This guy needs her. Yeah. And, uh, seemingly is doing it. Probably she knows all about his past. So he, she knows right. that he is doing it for not the most, he's not being the most her- heroic about it, but he needs the money. But also he's trying to find this woman killer and sure he is interested in her and, you know, she gets a moment of having power over him. So, but yeah, it does move awfully quick. It would be nice to see their relationship maybe grow a little bit. If we had, I would love to see like a three hour cut of this. Where Right. Well, again, it's, it's, it's it's the passage of time problem in this movie. Like, again, I, again, like kind of like we touched on with the killer before we got on air, like uh, I could watch the killer for 12 hours. I'm just engulfed in that, that world and that story. And it's the same here. Like uh, I'm so engulfed in this, the world and the story that I wouldn't mind watching a fucking four hour cut of this movie. You yeah. Know? And yeah. I don't know if it needs to be, it, there just needs to be, again, there, there's some connective tissue where that distance and, and coldness that is established with you as a viewer to these characters. Um, there needs to be a little bit more, I think, in making you believe that relationship becomes so solidified so quickly. That's my only nitpick. And I agree with you guys. There, there could be a scene on the floor that like ties it all together. But to me, well, I, and I what don't... we know about Elizabeth and what we've seen and what we know about Elizabeth throughout this movie, what she does when she when she when she does approach Mikhail and has have sex with him. Like it doesn't seem out of character for her. It seems like she's not, just going for what she wants. Yeah, you know? not for her, but I I think that's the like I I would have liked a little bit more leaning into that power dynamic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it would have been nice. Yeah, yeah, but again, this is nitpicking. And then the other thing, I'll probably you know catch hell from you guys on this one. Uh, even to this day, I I am now I like the music, oh boy, and I like the sequence. I don't know if I like it kicking this movie off. And I'm talking about the goth James Bond intro. Oh, um, the Tim Miller intro. It's I like it as a music video, but to start with Christopher Plummer kind of getting that flower um, that's pressed in the frame and you're getting set up for this mystery. And then you go into that and I, I I've read all this about you it. Tell me you don't like Led Zeppelin too. Is this, no, is this I, I this is the thing. Like I love, I love their rendition of that song. I actually like if that was released as, hey, this was MTV back in the 80s and here's your music video on the girl with the dragon tattoo. I'd be like, man, that's amazing. But maybe it's growing up in the MTV generation or maybe it's a fact that I expect Daniel Craig in a James Bond film to get those type of openings. I'm it still jars me a little bit um, to get that opening because now I'm thinking about James Bond openings. Um, I'm thinking about that song. It just takes me out of it for a minute, but then I go right back into it as soon as the movie gets going. Well, as someone who had seen all of the bond movies, I can, I can see that comparison for me, not having seen all the bond movies when I saw this, um, 
you know, I had grown accustomed to the fact that David Fincher has some of the best opening title sequences ever. You know, that opening sequence of seven after you get the cold open with John Doe going through his notebooks and scrapbooking is 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 great. The opening of Panic Room where it's just, you know, pro- pro- projecting the, the words on the city and whatnot. Like, that's the kind of flair that Fincher just sort of does in his movies. Like, the Social Network was an exception to that. He just sort of did oh, the I, traditional I think opening the, I think the that, sequence but, for Fight Clubs, I mean, it, there's just something about this that it, it was jarring. Maybe it's intentionally to be jarring, but it... I, I watch it and I go, got it. Love the music, love everything about it. Just, mm-hmm. um, you don't it, get like the abuse of women out of that opening. No, I do. I, I get the whole, okay. I mean, I, okay. I, I get the imagery that they're trying to kind of, um, foreshadow for you. You just don't like it for the film. It, it just becomes a taste where it's just like, and maybe it's the fact that, um, I'm always looking at this saying, Hey, I think this is, this is one of the best film noir, like modern film noir. And you get to that in, you go, well, yeah, this is this is very much of a anarchist character detective thing. I should expect that kind of opening. It still feels kind of jarring every time I see it. I don't know why. I, I, no, I mean, it, after the flower thing, you might just be like, let's get to the movie. Like, I want to get into this Yeah, that's the thing. When, when you start with that image of, like, why is he getting um, what could possibly be a gift every year from a serial killer? Mm. You're like, let's just get into it. And then you get this music video, and you're like, um, wrap it up. Like, uh, let's get going. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, the other thing that kind I respect of sucks your take, is, Troy. Yeah. The other thing about that intro or the, the, the opening credits is like, it's obviously setting up the, the other books as well. You've got the, the hornet's nest stuff and the girl who played with fire. And so it's like, they were, even with the characters that they introduced in this, like some of the background characters in this were meant to go on to be bigger characters in the movies going forward. Yeah. Um, so they, they had plans and going into this to to really develop it and that sort of proves that point but i, I you know I, I could see you know wanting to get straight into the mystery but i think that opening credit sequence is is awesome it, it, it doesn't bother me at all <laughs> it's crazy like I, I love watching it like i go watch it on its own it just and maybe it's because i've seen this film a couple of times like i'm ready to get into it yeah that i, yeah. I i'm not saying i fast forward but i'm i'm sitting there going okay let's go and then the well, only other thing that gets on my nerves is they murdered the cat. That's, that's just not cool. Really um, murdered the cat. Yeah, the cat Something was, I noticed this time around, did they arrange the cat to look like a swastika? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was, cause I, I caught it. Like I, I noticed the broken legs and whatnot the first few times I'd seen it. And then like that, something about watching it this last time, I was like, Holy shit. Did they fashion it to look like a swastika? Like I never really noticed it that way before. Yeah, um, that cat was uh, that cat was played by Roscoe the cat, and he actually has five <laughs> acting credits on IMDb. By the wow. way, you can go look that up. Is this his biggest movie though? It is his biggest movie. His other ones, nice. some TV shows. Do you think like Roscoe that. was on the picket lines with SAG? I don't, I don't know if Roscoe's alive anymore. To be quite honest. Well, I'll um, tell you what. I mean, I if we didn't get the relationship with Elizabeth and Mikhail, I would have loved to have seen a, a relationship with the cat and Mikhail. That would have worked for me. Yeah, I'm, hey. cat. <laughs> uh what what else do you guys have about this film? Um I know I mean I want to talk about the score. <laughs> yeah, let's talk uh, about the score. I mean I'm a I'm a huge Nine Inch Nails fan. I'm also like the fact that Trent Reznor has crossed over into film into scoring films is just 
It's one of the, like, he's one of those musicians you talk about grunge earlier, like sort of came out of that era of the nineties grunge and metal scene. And, um, you know, it started working with Fincher on social network. And while the social network is one of my favorite scores of all time, this was their second score with Fincher. And I think they sort of started to develop, Oh, well, we need to go more into atmosphere, whereas the social network has a lot of things you could almost make into full songs, you know, like there's there's a lot of musicality going on in the score to, to social network where this one is a lot about atmosphere and a lot of setting mood. And you don't have those like techno beats and whatnot that you got in social network, which totally worked for that movie. Um, but I, I kind of, you know, that the score to this movie lends to its coldness for sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then they would go on to do every Fincher film after this as well. I mean, the Gone Girl is the same thing. Like they went for a lot of atmosphere in Gone Girl, but the, it, like the, the matching of Fincher and Reznor working together has been one of my favorite like collaborations in the past decade. Yeah. I mean, I second I, that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Agreed. Cool. What else, Brad? I mean, I don't know if we've sang the praises of this film enough. It is damn near a masterpiece. And I think there has been this sort of reflection back on David Fincher's past films. Anytime a new one of his new one comes out. And I think people now look at Zodiac and they're like, that's a damn near perfect film. Mm. Gone girl, damn near perfect film. Girl, the dragon tattoo, damn near perfect film. Bike club. We all know it's like this guy. He's going like, places. Is, is, like <laughs> as much as we love him. I still think he's like a tad bit underrated. Yeah. It's like, dude, you watch this film and you're like, this guy is just so confident and knows exactly what he's doing. The thing with Fincher though, is I think he really picks and chooses his projects. Like he picks, picks over them with a fine tooth comb, I think. And, uh, you know, he's, he's been, you know, he's developed a lot of novels into movies and the only one that I've actually read and then saw the film that he did was Gone Girl. Mm -hmm. And I, I could not put Gone Girl down when I read it. And there were moments in that book where I was just like, are you freaking kidding me? Like it had some twists and turns that I could not believe in it. And then when I saw what Fincher did with it, I was like, he, I don't know if anybody could have taken what was on the page and put it on screen better than Fincher did in that movie. And yep. I think, I think this is similar when you talk about like American filmmakers and whatnot. I mean, we've seen plenty of, that's the other thing I kind of love about this movie is we've, we've taken a movie or a, a, a book, a story that is from a foreign author has been made by a foreign filmmaker already. You know, we've got plenty of films where, you know, they've, you know, we've, we've had all of these Korean films that have been remade, you know, the ring, all that stuff that's been Americanized. And some of them have been good, a lot of them are shit. Like, you know, we've got, we've had our, 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 you know, Spike Lee tried to give us an old boy remake, which just does not work in my opinion. And I just, I love the fact that we've had a book and a movie for this story already. And Fincher still throws his dick on the table and is like, I can do it too. Well, like it's, it's, it's the importance of pairing up the creative with the source material. Yeah. So not everybody. I mean, I would be the first to say that Spike Lee is an amazing film director. Another uh, like very important American film director. 
And that's, they, and that's not a knock on Spike Lee. It I'm isn't. Just, but yeah. is Spike Lee the right person to right. to go after the content or the storytelling of Old Boy? I, I don't think so. Um, but this one, I mean, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think what makes Fincher unique is he seeks out the stories that interest him first and foremost. Mm-hmm. He's delivering something that is unique. He's a great visual storyteller. Yep. And I love the fact that... Um, I don't know. It seems like with his releases, et cetera, either the audiences are ready for him or they're not. So if you look at the social network, if you look at this one, it it makes money, right? But think about all the times that he releases a film and it's just a little bit ahead of its time. Um, or it, and we, we as an audience have to catch up to him to some degree. So I can't think of a lot of directors. Uh, I mean, the list is pretty short that when you look at the filmography, you can kind of go through and just say, well, you know, the zeitgeist or, or the culture, whatever it is, it's like, Hey, we were either in lockstep with them at that time period, or he was just about two or three years ahead of us. Right. Which mm-hmm. thankfully for the home video market or streaming, those are our chances to catch up with them. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's also unique too. Cause his first film is in 1992 with alien three. He's only made 12 feature films between now and then. So he is not someone who also is in a hurry yeah. to make a bunch of stuff. he, you know, he sat on like Mank stuff for a long time. You know, there's four years between Social Network and, and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So like he takes his time and and really figures out what he wants to do. Now he's, he's been attached to a lot of like Cleopatra he's been attached to. I know he was yeah. like, what was he, the uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea film for a long time. So he's attached to a lot of stuff too. But yeah, I, 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 I mean, my biggest thing with Fincher is I love like he's not afraid to fight for his vision. You know, there was a big to do with the social network when they wanted him to do that. He was like, I can do it for this amount of money. They came back with a lower amount. He said, I can do it for the amount I gave you. And he fought and fought and got what he wanted. Um, I think David Fincher is, is so like consistent and concise with the way he makes a movie that he's not going to come to you with a overblown budget. He's going to say, I can make this movie. For this amount of money and he has he has made some great films on the budgets that he's 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 gotten and like i just I, I love the fact that he sticks to his guns and if he can't get what he wants then he doesn't make the movie you know it's he's not gonna he's not gonna candy you know he's yeah. not gonna walk around it and he's not gonna dance around it like a lot of filmmakers probably would i hear you i i think at some point next year um, we're gonna have to talk about uh, the girl in the spider's web, since that film actually did bomb. <laughs> because it will be uh, interesting conversation to to revisit that one because as a talented director, but um, I, w- I would be really curious if we can get the the gang back together and and tackle that. I so, haven't ventured into that territory. I mean, my wife kind of has a grudge because she doesn't really agree with the fact that they wrote the story after the after the author died and all of that. And she's a big fan of the millennium trilogy. So um, she's got her opinions about the girl in the spider's web, but yeah. Um, Claire, is it Claire Foy who plays Elizabeth in that one? Yeah. Claire Foy. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, she's, she's really good. I mean, I'll, I'd give that movie a shot, but you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a truest to Fincher's <laughs> to Fincher's. Film. No, I get it. It sounded like you need a little therapy when you found out there was no uh, part two or part three. Oh man. Like I just I feel again, for you, man. I, I loved the characters. I loved the story so much that it was, it was quite heartbreaking to see that Fincher was, was washing his hands of it. Oh yeah. Um, 
But and 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 knowing what we know now, like knowing that they were in like talks to to make it a show on Netflix, like I think that could have worked great. We've seen the prestige TV stuff with Game of Thrones and and whatnot in the past decade that you you know you could have made this into a killer freaking Netflix show. Oh sure, and they still can, still yeah. sitting out there. Yeah. Well, this is where I would ask if this is a bomb, but I'm I'm not even bothering with that because because I broke the rules. I know. I'm yeah, sorry. Sorry. Brad, what are we talking about next week? Yeah, so next, week's, next week is a little unique. We're going to talk about 1990s uh, narrow margin, but we're also going to go back to 1952 and talk about the original, the narrow margin. Yeah, so we get a classic film noir. Richard Fleischer film from 52. Yeah. Um, and then Peter Himes coming back on the show. With Gene Hackman. It'll, it'll yeah. be interesting. We get train like film noir and trains. That that's its own subgenre. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Another movie I just watched for the first time, The French Ooh. Connection. Oh, there you go. I, I loved. I loved scratching the French Connection. all the lists, all the movies off his list. Good yeah, job, buddy. I'm proud of you. I'm re- I'm ready to rewatch uh, To Live and Die in L.A. next, though. I'm oh, get one to give that one a rewatch. Nice, Troy. You know what the best thing about next week is? What's that? The film's actually a bomb. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You mean yep. you mean the the one that I researched and went, oh, look at that number versus that number. Yeah, okay. one is yeah. The alligator's mouth is getting yeah. Yeah, yeah got exactly. It. What's sorry. what's the movie after that? That's that's another one you picked, and I'm I'm pretty sure that one did bomb though, right? A simple plan. That is a that is a bomb. So awesome. Oh, right? simple plan is so good. Yeah, we're we're closing so it out good. with uh, two actors. We we kicked the month off, so. Uh, that's gonna be super interesting. So real quick, I don't have any traditional feedback. There was something that we were trying to put together this month, but timing just didn't allow. But I I do want to promote um, this this group real quick. So if if you love film noir, and we're talking classic film noir and the modern stuff, head over to noircity.com. So this is a little website. They basically handle a lot of, um, I would say, programming for things like AFI uh, that they just did in October. And they've also got an event coming up at, um, I think it's the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, California in January. They're doing uh, the 21st Annual Film Noir Festival. But what's cool about this website is you can see what um, they're working on in terms of trying to get these festivals in theaters across the country. But they have two publications that um, you can get from the website. I think they have links to Amazon. And you can get the digital version or the, the print versions. But there is a Noir City magazine and a Noir City annual. So if you are into film commentary, essays, and everything else, on this subgenre, you have to go to noircity.com and check out their stuff. I bought a couple of their magazines. I got the latest Noir City Annual. It is fantastic. It covers the entire genre from the classics to the modern stuff. Um, and you, you, you're just going to find a bunch of films that you didn't even know existed. So I think this month we're trying to kind of, if you, if you want to keep this journey going, um, we're trying to give you some resources. Uh, so this is one of the places I would, I would kind of beg everybody to go and check out and then, uh, you know, pick up an issue of the magazine and see if you like it. Uh, they got a whole Veronica Lake issue out there too, that you can still get, I think off Amazon. So it's pretty cool. But Brad, if somebody wants to leave their thoughts on the girl with the dragon tattoo or want to recommend some other films, cause we're starting the lineup for next year, how do they get a hold of us? 
Yeah, that's notabombpod at gmail.com, or you can head over to Notabomb Podcast, hit the contact us button, or hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Josh, what's going on with you guys? You're you're on vacation, right? Yeah, VHS Files is on a little bit of a break right now. Just uh, life stuff got in the way, and you know stuff like that happens sometimes. But we are hoping to get back on the horse uh, within the next couple of weeks, I would hope. I mean, we have a few episodes in the bank that should be coming out pretty soon. Um, but for right now, we're taking it a little slow, regrouping, kind of maybe going maybe going through a little bit of a rebrand in the future. But um, yeah, I mean, not a whole lot going on with me right now. I'm going to be starting an uh, a little project in the near future. I'll, I'll talk more on that next time I'm on with you guys, but, um, I'm, I'm excited for things that are coming up. Awesome. Well, if you want some of the classic episodes, they can still find those at like the, their favorite podcast, um, places yep. plus the YouTube channel, right? Yep. VHS files. Uh, you can find us on any of the podcast platforms. You can find us at VHS files on YouTube. We've got videos and the audios up there as well. So go check out our past episodes. Awesome. Uh, Brad, we actually, outside of the film noir stuff, we're going to have two, I guess, special episodes this month. Is that right? I believe so. I know what one of them is. What's the other? Well, the other one is with our good friend who wants to talk about those other films. We've got the, the breaking Brad episode or yeah. Breaking Brad episodes coming up, which is, uh, I, I think we're going to do two movies, right? Are we doing the first one in the, the third one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're just going to do Thanksgiving the series, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Thanksgiving <laughs> one and Thanksgiving three for that's for breaking Brad. And oh, wow. as long as we don't, uh, we were supposed to do this last week, but scheduling got in the way, but we should have another special prize, uh, surprise with, uh, one of our good filmmakers is going to come back on and, and we might do a special episode, uh, with that person. So stay tuned. But <laughs> if, if you want to hear some other like good podcasts, where do they go for that? Yeah, so we got the Gentleman's, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. They always release on Monday, so you can always go back and listen to that. Uh, Watch Get Plus, they release on Thursday, so a day after you hear this, go check them out. Uh, Josh already said the VHS Files, Night of the Living Podcast, Backlook Cinema, the Mixtape Podcast, and Raiders of the Podcast. And Troy, yeah. I wanted to say our listener John, going through a little bit of a health issue, I wanted to tell him that we wish him all the best of luck and get well soon, buddy. Yes. Agree. 1000%. Well, Josh, I can't thank you enough. I know, I know you've been super busy and you got a lot of stuff going on, but just to take a few hours and to hang with us, it I, we're super grateful, man. Guys, I'm always here whenever you want to have me. Do you see how, like how mad he was about this, not being a bomb job? I did this for you, man. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Well, it was, I just, uh, that I just uh, I'm glad it finally came full circle again. I remember sending Brad that email about, hey, if you guys ever want to talk about Girl of the Dragon tattoo, let me know. I gladly come on. But uh, I think this is probably like the tenth movie I've talked about with you guys now. So it's been a it's it, it was nice to uh, start a friendship over Girl with the Dragon tattoo. Well, I've been I've been getting Brad shit all week because as soon as I started looking, I'm like, wait, this is nominated for Academy Award. Wait a second, and then <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Again, I mean. It, Technically not a bomb, but you know, it's, it's got enough of a, you know, aura around it. that sort of negative that I was like, this would probably fit right into their show. So yeah, why not? We're winging it anyways. Not like we're doing this for a living. So (laughs) we can make up our, it's our own show. Yeah. We got a Don Lee clause. We got a Dave Fincher clause. We can do whatever we want. All right. 
Well, I, I think that's it for today. So I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the show. I hope you're watching a lot of film noir this month. We're going to keep it going next week and talk about two films. So come back. And uh, I think we have a special guest for that one too. So stay tuned. We'll see you then. Don't lose your head. Bye.